About six weeks ago, we began our series through Romans. And our series began back in chapter 9 with Paul expressing his sadness that many Jews had rejected Jesus. He wrote these words, you might remember these. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Fast forward six weeks and three chapters later, we have Paul rejoicing in praise to God, exclaiming, To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's quite a shift that has taken place. And we've seen over the last few weeks a few reasons for Paul's shift in attitude or the journey that he's gone on from lament to praise. And the first reason that we've seen is that that Paul has explained how Israel's rejection of Jesus has resulted in the gospel going out to all the nations. Thousands of people from all over the world are coming to Jesus to receive his mercy, and that's worth rejoicing in. But secondly, God has not rejected Israel or forgotten them. God is saving a remnant of Israel who are turning to Jesus and accepting him as their Lord. Things aren't as dire as they might first appear. They're not as dire as they might seem on the surface. And thirdly, Paul trusts that the hardening of Israel's heart is ultimately for their good because it will cause them to see their own sin, repent, and throw themselves on God's mercy instead of relying on their own efforts. He trusts that there will come a time when Israel's heart is softened again. And so as a result of all this, Paul is overcome by God's wisdom. He sees that God is using something that looks like tragedy to bring more and more people to himself and to pour out his mercy on all the nations. The hardening of Israel's heart, though a temporary tragedy, is part of God's surprising and wonderful plan that more people should be saved. And so Paul bursts out in praise. Our passage today is a song of praise. It's the impulsive response of someone who's been blown away by God's magnificent plans and purposes. And so as we come to look at this passage, let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you work in marvellous and mysterious ways, surprising ways, to bring about your mercy. That sometimes what looks on the surface like tragedy or failure in our eyes, you turn and bring about wonderful things uh, in the midst of that. And Lord, uh, we, we pray that we might respond in worship and praise today, just as Paul does. Amen. So as we look at this, this passage, this song, Paul's song is filled with some really beautiful images, I think. And the first image is of an endless ocean filled with delights. Listen to these words. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Maybe you've had that experience of sitting on the sand looking out over the ocean as the waves come crashing in and being overwhelmed for a moment by how vast 
powerful and seemingly endless the ocean is. I remember as a boy being quite scared of the ocean. On the surface it always looked fierce and unpredictable and full of mystery. But if you've ever been snorkeling or scuba diving beneath the surface, beneath the seething turmoil of the ocean waves is a treasure trove of creation's delights. Some of the most spectacular sights in all of creation lie hidden in its depths. The ocean is an endless wonder, always holding more for us to discover and delight in. Now to someone wearing a swimming cap, the ocean looks like a challenge to overcome, an enemy to defeat. But to someone wearing snorkel and fins, the ocean is a magnificent pool to bask in and enjoy its delights. What a beautiful image to describe God's wisdom and knowledge. Perhaps we could imagine Paul back in Romans 9 being a bit like someone standing at the edge of the ocean with a swimming cap on, confused and overcome by what God was doing with Israel. But by the end of chapter 11, Paul has put on his snorkel and fins and dived beneath the waves. And what he has found is so spectacular that it takes his breath away. Israel is not forgotten. God has not given up. Because God in his wisdom is often doing more than we can experience with our senses. But sometimes we need to be willing to dive beneath the waves and look with eyes of faith to the character and promises of God rather than what our superficial senses tell us. Our eyes and ears do not always tell the whole story. The second image Paul describes is that of someone trying to understand or follow the tracks of someone who's far more wise and more intelligent than they are. He exclaims how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In Isaiah chapter 40, which Paul quotes in this song, humans are described as being like grasshoppers jumping about the earth while God is seated far above the earth and looking down. And I think that's the kind of image that Paul has in mind here. Can you imagine a grasshopper trying to understand the world? Grasshoppers spend their life in a tiny world where life is composed of eating and survival. Their world is small and their brains are tiny. Even if they had the capacity to talk, a grasshopper would never be able to understand the world properly. Their imagination and experience and, and their knowledge would be so limited by the small experience of life they have. And Paul's saying a similar thing about us and God. In comparison to the wisdom and knowledge and magnificence of God, we are like grasshoppers. We are finite, limited, simple creatures trying to make sense of the actions of our eternal, mighty and all-knowing God. We see life through the fishbowl of our limitations. 
What arrogance it would be for a grasshopper to claim they understand the world and know how it works. What arrogance it would be for a human to claim to know the mind of God or to complain because God is not acting the way we think he should. How can humans try to explain what God is doing with Israel when we're just hopping about in the grass? A case in point is the book of Job. Verses 34 and 35 of our, our passage today, uh, they're, they're, they present two questions to us, and those questions appear in the book of Isaiah and the book of Job. And it's so appropriate that Paul should go to the book of Job. Because Job was the master of looking at the surface of life around him and trying to explain God's actions. Job was the grasshopper trying to trace God's paths and search out his judgments. But all through the book of Job, while Job comes up with all kinds of explanations and complaints against God, based on his experiences of the world around him, we as the readers are told that there's far more going on behind the scenes that Job is unaware of. God is at work taking Job on a journey towards wisdom and growth and trust. And the book of Job ends with Job being a much wiser and more complete human being than he was at the start of the book. For Paul, his experience of seeing his fellow Jews reject Jesus is a Job moment. And it's tempting for us to look at these kinds of confusing experiences and ask, what on earth is God doing? I sometimes look around at our Western society and the hardness of people's hearts to the gospel, and sometimes I wonder the same. What is God doing in our world? What is God doing around us? But what if God is doing more than we realize? What if God's wisdom is greater than we could possibly imagine? What if things aren't out of control? What if God is going to blow us away again and again as he unveils the delights that lie in his eternal depths? What if our call is not to explain or to accuse God, but to trust him? The final image that Paul uses in this song is expressed in verse 36. It says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. Now, when I hear these words, I think of a river system. A river always has a source, a channel, and a destination. And if we imagine life being like a river, Paul is saying that God is the source where all life comes from and begins. But he's also the channel through which all life flows and he directs life according to his good purposes. And he's also the destination to which all life flows. God sees the beginning, the end and the present. But he doesn't just see it, he holds it in his hands. In fact, the beginning, the end and the present exist in him. 
He sees the rhythms and movements and patterns of life perfectly and is the only one who has the vantage point and character to truly act with wisdom. We are but fish swimming along God's river of life and, and, and Paul wants us to swim with the current, not against it. God's plans and purposes are taking us on a journey to, that, that began with him and then leads us back to him. Our destination is to find rest and peace in God's lake of wisdom and life. The final line of Paul's song, having just said that life is from, through and for God, is to burst out with the only appropriate response. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If God is the river of life in which we swim, what better response than to turn ourselves towards him and go with the current in trust and praise, worshipping our God who is Alpha and Omega. What a journey Romans 9 to 11 has been. Over the last six weeks, Paul's asked many questions that explore God's faithfulness to his promises, that explore our confusion and doubts when we don't understand, and that explore the wisdom of God bringing about his wonderful plans in surprising ways. But finally, after it all, Paul invites us to join him in worship and praise. And I want to leave us with a few thoughts to ponder in response to this passage and, and to this whole series. The first thing I want us just to think about for a moment is that Romans 9 to 11 has been an important reminder about who we are. Time and time again, Paul has reminded us that we are not in control and we don't have all the answers. We are the grasshopper of Isaiah. We are Job trying to comprehend the world when, from our very limited vantage point. And, and the challenge of Romans 9 to 11 is, if we are grasshoppers and God is God, how will we respond to the things that we don't understand? There will be things we don't understand. The world will be confusing. That is part of being human. But how will we respond to those times? Maybe we will respond with resentment and anger towards God. Maybe we'll shake our fist at him and blame him for our trouble. Maybe we will respond with apathy. We might just shrug our shoulders and dismiss God as being irrelevant or unnecessary. We might despair and blame God, deciding that he's not a God worth following. But Paul wants us to have a big picture of how majestic and good and merciful our God is. God will do what is right. He is doing more than we can see. And his mercy is greater than we know. Paul says... Be the grasshopper and come before God in humility and praise. 
Go and look out over the ocean and contemplate the majesty of our God whose treasures are endless. Stand on the mountaintop and consider the grandeur of our Creator and Redeemer. Come to His Word and remember how God's wisdom and victory is a baby in a manger born to die. If God can turn that into victory, imagine what He can do with your pain and confusion. Another response we might have to this to these passages to Romans 9 to 11 is that we should expect to be amazed by God sometimes I think we do a good job at taking the mystery out of faith we spend so much try, time trying to understand God and dilute him down to neat ordered statements of doctrine so that God become or almost becomes in our minds predictable and controllable Sometimes we think we can understand God so well that we can tell him what to do and how he should act. But the Bible teaches us time and time again that God is surprising. Paul expects God to Paul expects that he will continue to discover the endless treasures of God's wisdom into eternity. Endless treasures. And if you think back over God's surprises in the biblical story, the many surprises, they are always for the purpose of pouring out more mercy and more goodness. What surprises has God got in store for us? I am sure there are so many ways that we think God is going to work where we will one day find out the way he actually was working is far more magnificent than we ever, ever thought. Maybe we'll be blown away one day when we discover what God is doing with our world during this time of COVID. I am sure there is far more going on behind the scenes than we know of and that God is doing some amazing, incredible things to show mercy. Maybe God is actually using your grief to draw, him, draw you towards him. Maybe you're not even aware of that at this time. Maybe God is using the turmoil in your family life to prepare hearts to meet and embrace Jesus as Lord. Maybe one day you'll look back on that loss of work that is painful at this time and causing so much anxiety. But one day maybe you'll look back and see how God in that trouble has been blessing and growing you. Now that's not in any way to, to diminish how difficult life can be, but to encourage us to trust God when we don't understand, when we worry, when we hurt. Finally, I wonder how Romans chapter 9 to 11 might help us or challenge us to respond to the times that we live in. As we've worked through this series and seen Paul wrestling with why Israel's heart has been hardened to Jesus, I've been contemplating the hardness of heart that we see in Australia and around the Western world in post-Christian societies. I look around our towns of Winmalee and Springwood and there's a hardness to the gospel for many different reasons. 
Sometimes this hardness is because of the failures and abuses of the church. Sometimes it's because of individualism and hedonism that makes faith look stifling. Sometimes it's because we only believe what we can see and experience with our senses or or we think that we're capable of building heaven on earth without God. As I look around at the West, it sometimes looks to me like the gospel is failing. But what if God is doing more than we realise? What if God is causing his gospel to flourish in other parts of the world, even as many in the West turn away from him? What if God is giving the West over to to the hardness of hearts for a time so that in the future we might see our sin, repent and believe? What if this hardening is necessary for a future softening? I don't know the answers to those questions, but Romans 9 to 11 certainly makes me wonder and trust in what God is doing. And these passages urge us to, to not give up hope, but to persevere even in the hard soil around us. We're urged to trust that God is doing more than we can see. And so there's reason to hope for Australia. There's reason to hope for Springwood and Winmalee. There's reason to hope for our families and neighbours and friends who do not yet know the Lord. And I believe we will all be surprised by God's mercy and wisdom again and again and again. C.S. Lewis, in his book called Till We Have Faces, tells the story of a woman named Oyuel who spends her life angry at the God of the mountain. She looks at her life and the actions of God and accuses him, questions him and blames him as she comes to the conclusion in the first half of the book that God is silent and absent and has no answer for her. Perhaps we can think of moments in our lives where we have felt a little bit like that. But at the end of the book, Oriel has a radical change of heart as her perspective shifts and she sees that that the life that she has lived has been filled with greed and pride and she has caused immense hurt to the people most dear to her. And she begins to discover the treasures of God's wisdom. And she says this, I ended my first book with the words, No Answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.